democracies have always been susceptible to demagoguery. That's why the founders wrote about demagogues. And it just turned out that Trump was a very effective demagogue coming along at the right time and the right circumstances. And, you know, it didn't have to happen, but it happened. Hey there, I'm John Harwood, and this speakeasy with Bill Kristol is a personal one. Kristol helped build the modern Republican Party. Now he fears Donald Trump is badly damaging it. I sat down with him in the Mayflower Hotel in downtown Washington, the place where, after serving in both the Reagan and first Bush administrations, he made the decision to found the conservative Weekly Standard magazine. He still works at the magazine, but becoming a leading voice of the never-Trump Republicans has changed his life in other ways. Cheers. Cheers. Your dad once said that a neoconservative was a liberal who had been mugged by reality. What, what's happened to you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a conservative who's been mugged by Trump, but I still think I'm a conservative. I, don't, I think I'm trying to uphold what was true about conservatism, and obviously anyone having gone through the last year or two or just going through life would rethink certain aspects of what one once believed, but I, I consider myself a Reagan conservative. You don't think as, your politics have changed? No, not much. I mean, pro-American leadership in the world, anti-America first, pro-free trade, pretty much, pro-moderate uh, uh, on immigration. I mean, I reread Reagan's uh, accept, uh, I guess it was acceptance speech at the Republican convention, extremely strong endorsement in 1980, strong endorsement of uh, the value of immigrants and being respectful to immigrants, and as he ended up signing, of course, in 86, a pretty big immigration bill. Um, limited government, constitutional government. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I think I haven't changed much. I mean, I won't, on particular issues, I've rethought things, uh, who wouldn't over 30 years. And I mean, in terms of the conservative movement, I do think it would be foolish to deny that Trump has exposed certain aspects of that movement as uh, less healthy than I thought or hoped. What has Trump exposed about conservatism? I think parts of the conservative movement or the Republican Party, and it, it's, it's a huge country, it's a big movement, so maybe one shouldn't be surprised, but there are parts that I think were suppressed before uh, that have come more to the fore. Some bigotry, some uh, closed-mindedness, some intolerance, um, backward-looking aspects of the movement. Any movement in this country, left or right, it's going to be a huge conglomeration of different things. I think one of, to the credit of the Republican Party and the conservative movement, I would say, the, we've, uh, at times, people have been expelled or marginalized, Pat Buchanan and, uh, in the 90s, uh, Ron Paul and Rand Paul in the first decade of this century, Bill Buckley famously expelled the Berkshires in 1964. So I think it's been a movement that's tried to maintain its boundaries, uh, but it turns out there, was, there were elements there that Trump appealed to. He's an effective demagogue. Uh, I thought they wouldn't, I thought the appeals wouldn't work as well as they did. That's why I never thought he'd win the Republican nomination. I was a little wrong about that, and uh, and then the rationalization. You had some company in there. Yes, yeah, that's 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 weird. That's kind of you to say, and then the rationalization of Trump, the acceptance of Trump by so much, so many Republicans and some conservatives, including conservatives I've worked with and respect, has been disturbing to me. Mm -hmm. um, through your father, uh, who was part of a movement that had a big effect on the nature of the two-party system, you were present at the creation of the Democratic and Republican parties as we knew them to develop during our lifetimes. Uh, so if you were to say how we got from the uh, Republican Party that your dad influenced the composition of, he started as a Democrat, of course, uh, to now, 
how would you how would you chart that journey? I mean, there are obviously a lot of aspects and elements, but I, I just think Trump matters a lot. That is, if Trump had run in 2015 and lost, the way other outside businessmen ran and lost, the way demagogues, I would say, like Buchanan or Ron Paul run, ran and lost, though they got votes, they won some primaries and so forth. And Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or Scott Walker or any of these people had been the nominee. I think everyone would have said, you know what, actually what's striking is the continuity of the party. You know, it's Reagan, Bush, McCain, Romney, now it's Rubio or something like that. It's moved on some, some issues to the right, some, some others not to the right. Um, so I think one can't underestimate how important just Trump winning the nomination and then winning the presidency in particular was. If he won the nomination and then lost, it could have been, okay, well that was sort of a weird year, he lost. Okay, let's look at Congress. It's Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton and Joni Ernst and then let's look at the governors. It's Nikki Haley and, you know, John Kasich and Rick Scott. And it's a bit of a, it's a spectrum, but it's recognizable, right? That's not like a weird, but I think you just can't underestimate the importance of one person winning the nomination and then especially winning the presidency and especially then not accommodating, you might say, the norms and the, uh, to the norms that one expected a president to accommodate to and then having so many people, as I say, senators, congressmen, uh, some conservative leaders uh, deciding, okay, well, those norms didn't matter as much, and Trump won, so we're just signing on to a kind of populist demagogue. Because so much of what conservatism was about, one thought, was resisting populist demagogues. Mm -hmm. Well, let me go back to one thing you mentioned. You talked about bigotry. Uh, an important event in the development of the two parties as they exist today was the break that occurred in the mid-60s when Barry Goldwater went one way and Lyndon Johnson went another on civil rights and the Solid South ultimately uh, transformed into the Solid South for Republicans, um, uh, uh, propelled by the issue of civil rights. So is that, was that the, uh, the origin of what became the Trump cultural appeal on immigration and on race? I mean, to some degree, obviously, as in some, it obviously is the base of Trump's support. Though he has a heck of a lot of support, it turned out in the primaries in the North. He won some of those Northern Republican primaries by even more in New Hampshire, right, and in Massachusetts, New York. But yes, I'm clearly the party is more Southern. And, but I think it's unfair to say that, you know, for 50 years, this, it's been sort of just racism or bigotry and sort of, I mean, there were... I didn't know if that's what you meant by surfacing something that no, but was I, so I think No, but I think what would be, yeah, so I think it would be fair just to say that North and South, honestly, uh, there's a little more bigotry than someone like me wanted to believe. Mm -hmm. I think there are absolutely legitimate arguments on some of these policy issues for limited government, for, I don't know, uh, all kinds of not having racial preferences or limiting them in public institutions and so forth. Uh, but one hoped those were arguments people were making on principle. Some of them, turns out, were making them on bigotry. Though I would say, honestly, immigration is the one that maybe the issue that has surprised me the most. I mean, uh, you could be quite conservative in terms of policy on immigration from uh, merit-based immigration instead of family unification. I think we should just have a few immigrants. It does put some pressure on working class wages. I have no problem with a serious policy debate. The undertones, which have now become almost the overtones of that debate, have been distressing. And I guess we saw that, and we saw it in 2006-07 when there was the eruption against Bush and McCain on immigration. We saw it in some in 2013, when what I think was a quite flawed bill was opposed for both good policy reasons and probably some not so good reasons with some heated rhetoric. But to have it take over the party again, it's just a big, every party's going to have undertones and 
sidebars and you know tributaries mm -hmm. that are not so appealing. I mean, that's just, just what happens in a big country. And unfortunately, in this case, it all kind of came together to become the mainstream of the party, at least for a while. Now, if you pluck Trump out, would it go back to looking what it looked like? I mean, maybe. The same people are still there, you know, a lot of very decent people who've made careers not being particularly Trump-like. Or, and for me, this is in a way one of the biggest questions today and going forward, has just Trump being president for a year and having had the support of all these people for a year and having changed the views almost of Republican voters for a year and gotten them used to certain things, how much does that change the character of the party, of the movement, and even of our political discourse more broadly? You think the our politics may not snap back to what it was just because he passes from the scene. Right. I mean, I think it's unlikely just because if one knows history, one almost never goes back to the way it was. Now, we could end up in a perfectly good place. Uh, there could almost, you could even write a scenario where there's a reaction to Trump and a revival of a concern for civility, for democratic norms, for the rule of law and bending over backwards to be respectful of such of institutions and, and norms. One can imagine that maybe in the Republican Party, one can imagine it in the country as a whole, one can imagine, just as one can imagine uh, a reaction to the hyper-partisanship of today in a kind of, can't we have some civil centrist politicians? And that's quite possible. But it would require a pretty self-conscious reaction, I guess. And in any case, it still won't quite, you won't be back to where we were, you'd be in a new place, which maybe would be a good place. But it could also be the case, unfortunately, that you are in a bit of a downward spiral here and that Trump's incivility just led, leads to other incivility and that becomes the new norm that you denigrate your opponents in personal terms in a way that really wasn't that common at the presidential level. You were part of a movement that changed the establishment but ultimately became what one would call the Republican establishment. In that regard, do you feel at all responsible for the creation of the conditions that produced this? I mean, a little bit, yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, was it a mistake to, I don't know, I was critical of the 2013 immigration bill, maybe not that I had any effect, I think one way or the other, maybe we should have really pushed that, tried to, I should put my shoulder to the wheel and tried to push that through. I kind of thought we'd have a chance to revisit that in a less, actually, ironically, I thought, in a less fraught moment where we could have a more intelligent debate about some of these issues. That turned out to be wrong in the short term. Now, Bill Kristol's been a fixture in conservative media for a long time, not just in the Weekly Standard, but also as a commentator for 10 years on Fox News. I asked him if conservative media was responsible in part for creating the conditions that produced Donald Trump. So that's, I think, become really a problem in the last few years. I mean, I Fox was always, of course, somewhat conservative, but it was one thing when it was the conservative, somewhat conservative alternative to somewhat liberal. Uh, MSNBC and to some degree CNN and mainstream media and I would say I was on Fox for 10 years really 2002 to 2012 primarily on Fox News Sunday but obviously did uh, other things I think it was pretty good it was at a little tilted right sure uh, I left in 2012 in a disagreement with Roger Ailes and I, it's wrong for me to say that since I left it all went downhill but I, I think that did coincide uh, with in the second term of Obama particularly a sort of ramping up and now Fox is sort of 75% of it seems to be, you know, birther-like coverage of different issues. So that's been, I think, bad. And you put that together with the social media and the, you know, the segmentation of everyone into bubbles. And I, I think there's some truth to that. Why do you think that happened on Fox? You know, I don't know. I mean, was it happening already before Trump some? I mean, I, I don't know. There was a gradual in increasing of 
recklessness, I would say, in well, the second term of Obama, I think, was a shock. That was like, we're losing our country for a certain chunk of Fox viewers, as opposed to, that was an unfortunate election with Obama, but with the Tea Party won, we, the Republicans won the House in 2010, checked Obama really in 2011. So did that strike you as an organic reaction to events as opposed to a marketing decision? So I think it's both. I mean, because there was the organic reaction, and I found this a little in speaking and stuff, by two, well, it, one other thing I would put in though is the Obama administration was more left-wing in 2013, the second term, than the first term. So I think things objectively changed some. Uh, the mood of Republicans changed some, uh, and Fox News maybe saw an opportunity, a marketing opportunity, and changed some. I do feel now we're in a different world. I mean, now you look at Tucker Carlson began at the Weekly Standard. Tucker Carlson was a great young reporter. He was one of the most gifted, I would even say, uh, 24-year-olds I've seen in the 20 years that I edited the magazine, and it always had a little touch of Pat Buchananism, I would say, paleoconservatism, but that's very different from what it's become now. Well, you really are, I mean, it is close now to racism, white, I mean, I don't know if it's racism exactly, but an ethno-nationalism of some kind, let's call it, and a real, just, silly, you know, both a combination of dumbing down, as you said earlier, and stirring people's emotions in a, in a very unhealthy way. We'll go back to one other thing. You mentioned a disagreement with Ailes that caused you to leave Fox. What was the disagreement? I mean, I wasn't, didn't talk about something. He asked me to do something. It had it was nothing to do with I think I said on the air. He wasn't trying to tell me what to say. He was always good that way, I've got to say. He wanted me to call up people here in Washington and basically blackball someone who would run us uh, afoul of him and a totally separate matter in New York. And it seemed kind of crazy to me and totally I wasn't going to do it. I, I had no reason to believe that. I, I didn't know what had happened, but I wasn't going to just take his word for it and start calling about some other person right. I slightly knew. Yeah. Say, don't hire this person. So I just said no. So gradually I was cut back over the next year. Maybe Roger was getting more cranky and odd in his, old, in his older age, but um, anyway, that was the story. Yeah. What's it been like for you uh, as someone uh, steeped in the world that is now largely very pro-Trump to be a high-profile critic of him? Have have, have friendships changed or disappeared, or what's it been like? It's been fine, honestly. I, I'm not, uh, Stephen Hayes and I were talking about this just the other day in the office, and how a lot of people, it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask, and, but you know, you know, Steve had to say to someone, look, I'm not complaining, you know, it's, it's a bit tough, it's a bit difficult, you know, a lot of angst, you know, a lot of pain. No, no, look, believe me, it's been great being at the Weekly Standard. Uh, great being able to say my piece, and I think I'm trying to say, I think I'm saying the right thing, and so no, it's not been, but there have been friendships that are, I would say there have been blow-ups, but they're people I see much less of than I saw two years ago. Other people with whom I, we now have strange new respect relationships. Um, I'm are you goofing on Twitter when you say, uh, I'm with her, and uh, you know, the, the sort of my uh, inner flirting, liberal, yeah, 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 all that stuff, is, a it, semi is that a goof? Semi-goofing. I mean, I would say semi. I mean, a couple of things. A, I have rethought a few things, not just particular issues. You'd be foolish not to be. I actually do think that there is a possibility of a sort of a greater possibility for centrism in reaction to Trump on the one hand and Sanders on the other. For me, just as a kind of former political scientist, the big news in 2016 is 45% of Republicans vote for Trump, who's clearly outside the mainstream of what was thought to be the acceptable, an acceptable Republican nominee for the last, you know, 60, 50 years. And 45% of Democrats voted for Bernie Sanders, who 
proudly was not a Democrat because it's too corporatist a party and he's a socialist, right? So you're becoming a third-way guy? So I'm, I'm slightly more open to third-wayism than I was before. In the American context, it has its practical limits, and as an intellectual matter, I think it has, you don't want to just be splitting the difference and all that. But would it be healthy for the country if there were more honest attempts to work out some deals on some issues, some compromises, and not to make turn everything into a bloody trench warfare and an emblem of the culture war? Yes. So I am, and I, you know, I always was, I mean, neoconservatives always were, in some respects, conservative liberals or liberal conservatives, conservative defenders of the liberal tradition, however you want to put it. So I, I, I'm only, I'm partly goofing when I talk about my inner liberal and all that. Among your other conservative bona fides, you were a leader of the movement to stop national health care under Hillary Clinton, of course. You were a small government conservative. What would you advise people, economic conservatives today, especially in business, many of whom are thrilled with the idea that their taxes are being cut. What would you counsel them to say and be concerned about in what is Trumpism? So let me answer it in two ways. I mean, on health care, just to take that for a second, we published many, many articles on Republican uh, alternatives to and substitutes for Obamacare between Obamacare being legislated in 2010 and 20, through 2016. And we thought, we, the main argument was, you're not going to simply get the federal government out of that area. So let's turn it into tax credits. And we had a complicated, not complicated, perfectly intelligent arguments for what kind of tax credits and how you would do it. And the main idea was, let's get the, all the federal regulations, these exchanges, out of the way. But let's help people purchase health insurance. And let's adjust it to income and so forth. So uh, I think that would be an example of trying to take account of the world we live in and say, let, here's a conservative solution. Uh, to this problem. Um, in terms of businesses and others, in terms of Trump, I really think, I and mean, this is a case where I've gotten, if anything, maybe more of a libertarian. I mean, I think limited government is really important. I think, incidentally, we see it under Trump. Why has the country done pretty well, despite, I think, pretty well, in surviving the Trump presidency so far? Because the president's limited. It's not Argentina. The dictator can't just destroy all these institutions. He can't take over businesses. He can't even take over the entire federal government because there are civil service rules and military regulations and the Senate and the House, whatever their lack of standing up to Trump, they still exist and have some authority. The courts, obviously, federal and state governments, civil society, businesses. And I think that's actually been a good reminder of why we believe in limited government in general, a limited federal government, a presidency that's constrained in all kinds of ways, the rule of law. So I've become, if anything, a little more of a limited government, rule of law, constitutional norms type of guy. And I do think people should look past. I mean, it's nice that their uh, businesses got a tax cut and that the stock market's had a good year, but you really don't want to sacrifice what the founders put in place and people have labored to keep and improve for 200 however many years, 40 years, because of one good year in the stock market. Do business leaders have a role in that, in speaking out? Yes. Now, it's hard to ask them, don't take this thing from the president, or when the president wants to do a photo op at your at company and say, I'm this company staying here because of me. I, I, it's hard to ask them not to do it, but I thought it was sort of disgraceful. I, I think I wrote a little about this. You know, when all the tax cut gets passed and they sort of immediately have these bonuses, I mean, look, it's one th if the tax cut's good policy, we'll see that it was good policy. And it's perfectly legitimate a year later for corporate leaders to say, one of the things that contributed to our excellent returns this year was a more favorable tax structure, which allows us to compete around the world, and we're really thrilled that our workers have done better. 
write thousand dollar checks to people? I mean, first of all, that makes you wonder, wasn't the whole point of the tax cut was to make free up money for investment? I mean, you could have just, the government could just write checks to people. It doesn't have to go through a middleman, you know? Let's have, give them to everyone, not just to people who work for certain favorite companies. And I found it slightly creepy, kind of a, you know, sucking up to Trump and to the Trump administration in hope of favors. And this is the classic limited government, Hayek, et cetera, argument for why you don't want uh, protectionism, you don't want government meddling and interfering everywhere, picking winners, picking companies, but then the companies decide, well, we have to then cozy up to the federal government. And you do go towards a kind of third world type system uh, of a kind of crony corporatism as opposed to, you know, free, mar free markets with the emphasis on free. You don't have to have total, you know, you, I'm, again, not against the wealth the safety net, I'm not unrealistic, I don't think about, you know, you're not going to have perfect free markets and all that, but I think Trump is a good example of a certain kind of corporatism that's dangerous. And we, we conservatives have spent more time worrying about sort of the soft nanny state, you know, welfare state kind of situation on the left. But there is a kind of corporatist, Mar-a-Lago. Really? I mean, even I, it's, I'm, people pay $200,000 and they get to hobnob with the president and stuff. Everyone knows donors have more access than anyone else. Everyone knows. It's one thing if it happens in a certain kind of structure, at least, totally like with no visitors logs and no notion of who's saying what to whom and it's it's not good for the country i don't think uh last question uh you think we're on the way to a new party system a new party i think it's more less unlikely than i would have said two or three years ago i mean obviously it's been there have been a lot of there's always talk about that, or often talk about this, and it never seems to quite happen. But I do think a Trump Republican Party and a Sanders or Warren Democratic Party leaves an unbelievable, a huge opening in the middle for an independent presidential ticket. Whether it leaves an opening ultimately for a new party, I don't know. But to center-right Democrats, and center-left Democrats and center-right Republicans, let's say in foreign policy, agree on a, quite a lot of things these days, maybe more than the left or the right, it's possible. To Hillary Clinton, another way of thinking about it this, is this, I mentioned before, Trump got 45% of the vote, Sanders got 45%, 40% of the Republican vote, 40% of the Democrat. That means 55% of the Democratic vote was Hillary, really, 55% of the Republican vote was the others than Trump, Kasich, Rubio, Cruz. I mean, do those two 55% have as much in common with each other as with either of the 45% who are for Trump or Sanders? You could argue on at least a, some issues. So I don't know whether we get a new party, just some independent candidates, some reshuffling within the parties. I mean, I will say, it's, it's, I do think it's a very fluid moment. I mean, it's such a cliche to say uncharted waters, but it really is. We've never had a president like Trump. We've never had such an outsider become president, someone who ran against his own party and so forth. We've never had someone who's tried to govern like him. One year in, it's very hard to get a read on how this is going to play out and what the immediate effects, the second and third order effects are going to be. One thing people like us learn when you're around politics for a while is often the effects are kind of the opposite of what you think it's going to be even two or three, four, you know, four years later. Uh, uh, conservatives were, the Republican Party was never in worse shape than after, Water, after 74 and, and Watergate and Reagan wins in 80, so, you know, go figure. But I, I do think it's a very unusual time, and I think the chances, therefore, of the party system itself uh, being changed and which is itself, I mean, could that be good? Yes. Could it be, lead to a worse situation of just celebrity politics where there aren't even parties? It's just, you know, this celebrity, that celebrity, this demagogue picks on this issue, that demagogue get, does well on social media, and that's even maybe worse than 
the party system. So I, I don't I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. But yes, I think we're in a very unusual moment. Bill well, Crystal, thanks so much. Thanks, Tony. Great. I enjoyed it. And thanks for the beer. That's it for this latest installment of CNBC's Speakeasy. Thanks for listening. For more of my Speakeasy interviews, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, leave a comment, and stay tuned.